Welcome everyone to the Wild Podcast. My name is Bianca Barros. I'm one of Wild's founders and I'm your host for today's episode. In case you're wondering, Wild stands for Women in Leadership Development. Our work aims to help women fight oppression, stigmas, and constraints that stop them from achieving their full potential and to empower women to be impactful, conscious, and innovative leaders. In this podcast series, We will feature Thrillblazers political scientists that are opening paths to women in politics in the U.S. Today's guest is Evelyn Simen. Evelyn is a professor of political science and director of Race, Ethnicity, and Politics Master's Degree Program at University of Connecticut. Her third book, Historics First, How Symbolic Empowerment Changes U.S. Politics, considers whether candidates like Shirley Kism in 1972 and Jesse Jackson in 1984, as well as Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2008, mobilize voters through emotional appeals while combating stereotypes and providing more inclusive representation. In this episode, Dr. Simen will explore the symbolic empowerment effect of Kamala Harris being elected Vice President of the United States. first chapter of your book, Historic First, you talk about the power that Jesse Jackson uh, brought, for example, in electing Barack Obama. What do you think will be uh, the impacts of Kamala Harris being the first female Black vice president of the United States? Okay, this is a really cool question because I've been thinking about that um, throughout the course of the campaign. And I was on a pre-election panel and the other political scientists had a kind of aha, like they hadn't thought about that. I said, in effect, when you think about Biden's decision to make her his running mate, his VP, he has put her poised in a position to assume the presidency, point blank. So it's really a twofold impactful decision. And there's been word that he's not even talking about a second term because of his age. So in the same way that Barack Obama tapped Hillary Clinton to be the secretary of state to put her in a similar position because she needed that kind of, well, at least the literature suggests she needed that um, sort of international foreign experience as a diplomat, right? That it really put her, if she wasn't already qualified enough, it presumably put her over the top, right? <laughs> And oftentimes women feel they've gotta be, like uh, racial minorities feel they've gotta be overqualified to assume these roles. Um, and so in a similar fashion, I see Biden making a very strategic move. And, you know, we talk about her as being this historic first in terms of the vice presidency, but he has in effect put her in place to assume the presidency, you know, whether that be four years from now or eight years. And given her track record, you know she's going to run for president. You know, given her background in history, she said, what I eat no for lunch, you know, given her whole journey, um, you know, she's going to run for president. 
So the question is, will the American people, you know, what does she do over the next four years to kind of bedazzle American voters? Um, you know, are we going to love her like we love Michelle Obama or Oprah Winfrey? You know, um, it's going to be interesting to watch. But in response to your question, I see her as poised to assume the presidency. Um, the question is when? Would that be four years from now? Will that be eight years from now? And there's also this spillover effect, which we already saw this trend with the squad and other women of color. So I think it was 20, either 2018 or 2019, that was the year of the black female mayor, where you had this um, insurgence of a number of black women that became the mayor of major metropolitan cities. So we often see the mayor um, Lightfoot from Chicago, but we also see London Breed as well as, um, what's her name, Keisha Lance Bottoms out of Atlanta. So oftentimes they have been sort of the go-to face when talking about COVID or local, state, national elections in their part of the country. And so I think there's a spillover effect where increasingly you will see more Black women running for elective office at various levels of public service. I think you can anticipate another gubernatorial candidate if it's not Stacey Abrams herself yet again. Um, so I think you can see increasingly more people of color and more women running for elective office in the same way that I think Barack Obama, you know, Barack Obama, once he assumed the presidency, all of a sudden in my own hometown, there was like eight black men running for politics. Um, so I think there's a spillover effect. I have a follow-up question for that. Um, so you say the spillover effect encourages other minorities and women and people of color to run for office. What do you think are the most common challenges for, for people of color, women, minorities when they're running? And which of those challenges do you think the spillover effect takes away from them? Because you still have the challenges for funding and for running grassroots campaigns and things like this. What do you think are the challenges that the spillover effect takes that it's a motivation? What do you think it is? I got like a big answer to that question because my mind starts racing because I think about all these articles that I've talked about this. So how are they framed in the media? You know, every black candidate, every female candidate has to combat um, stereotypes. Um, so they got to emphasize their competency, their experience. Um, and there are some sort of unique ways in which their race, their gender, their identity is invoked. That's very specific to the opponent and just how, I don't know, negative they run a campaign and attack that candidate in terms of their identity to instill fear, anxiety, 
and the American voter. There's a lot of contextual things that matter that's specific to that space. The demographic makeup of those prospective voters, mobilization at the grassroots. So previous research has said that minority candidates, like lots of candidates, you know, fundraising can be a real issue, but also the backing coming from the party itself. So black women will run because their sororities, their church community, their local neighbors, community civic leaders on the ground has encouraged them to run in the same way that sort of like Shirley Chisholm herself was approached, right? A group of women on welfare showing up at her residence with a dirty envelope with maybe $11, you know, in change <laughs> saying, you know, we want you to run. Now, it's less, less often that they get actually tapped, recruited. Um, one exception would be Johanna Hayes from Connecticut, who was recruited and encouraged by Chris Murphy to run. That's out of the ordinary. And, but still, she didn't have the support until um, she reached the runoff of the Democratic Party. She wasn't their chosen candidate. <laughs> you know, she had to prove herself. And so to what extent do they still have to prove their viability as a candidate? And there is some, some hope there when you see Jamie Harrison's bid in South Carolina opposite Lindsey Graham, given the fundraising dollars, right? And all eyes watching that race, as we also saw in the Georgia Senate races. You know, my head is thinking about these questions because I have an edited book that I'm about to deliver on historic first in US elections that takes the theory of symbolic empowerment and applies it to lower level races. So Andrew Gilliam's race in Florida for the governorship, members of the squad, Presley, um, Omar, and Taleb out of uh, Michigan. And then Presley, excuse me, not Presley, um, Johanna Hayes. Those are my congressional races of historic first. And then London Breed being my more mayoral example. Obviously there's room for a lot more research on this. So <laughs> you, you did the historic first of writing the book, Historic First. So now we got to inspire all these scholars to yeah, settle the details, right? I, I did my book, now you all follow up. I'll see y'all next week. Take care. Bye. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to the Wild Podcast. We're really excited to see you at the next episode. In the meantime, stay wild.